Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 83. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Life is a bit crazy these days in the good old U.S. of A. Flooding in the south, forest fires and endless smoke in the west, earthquake swarms and solar flares, political and racial upheaval a total eclipse that thrilled some and frightened others. We've seen it all in just a few short weeks. We've also seen people helping people, giving of their time, energy, and funds to assist those suffering from calamity. Steve will start us out with a David Roper essay that celebrates the spirit of generosity we've seen exemplified again and again this summer. Life is worth living to give to others. David Roper Happy is the one who considers the poor. Psalm 41. And he quotes a nursery rhyme. Hark, hark, the dogs do bark, the beggars are coming to town. Some in rags and some in tags and some in silken gown. Some folks are poor in possession and appearance, others in faith, hope, and love. Even if we can't alleviate the poverty of those we meet along the way, we can consider them, a term that means to pay attention. G.K. Chesterton defines a saint as one who exaggerates what the world neglects. And what is neglected today is the art of paying attention. Few people seem to be aware of the pain around them. They go their way inattentive and unmoved. The love of many has grown cold. In such a world, it's not hard to find some want to supply, some misery to alleviate. A divorcee or widow, grief-stricken in her loneliness. A weary parent kept awake at night by the struggles of a hurting child. A frightened man awaiting cancer surgery in the morning. A care-worn checker in a grocery store working a second or third job to make ends meet. A young boy who's never had enough father. A single mother whose flood of worries has washed her hope away. A lonely old man who has outlived his usefulness, or so he believes. A hurting heart behind your own front door. Perhaps we don't have much to give, but we can pay attention. We can see beyond what others see to the possibilities of mercy, compassion, and understanding. John Newton wrote on one occasion, If, as I go home, a child has dropped a halfpenny, and if, by giving another, I can wipe away its tears, I feel I have done something. I should be glad to do greater things, but I will not neglect this. Author and lecturer Leo Buscalia once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. The purpose of the contest was to find a caring child. The winner was a four-year-old whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman that had just lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, 
climbed onto his lap and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. Indeed, we can help people cry. We can show them in other ways that we care. We can ask them to tell their stories and listen patiently while they do. We can treat them with courtesy and respect, though they may be testy or tiresome. We can encourage those with aching hearts with a word of God's mercy and love. We can follow up with an email, a card, or a call, and we can pray with them. The most helpful and healing act of all, for in prayer we bring others to the throne of mercy where they find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews. And here's where the beatitude comes into play. For in the oldest and oddest paradox of all, paying attention pays off, for we're happiest when we give our lives away. Think of those who think only of themselves, who grasp and grab and play it safe. The life they serve is the life they lose. In the end, it's worth nothing to anyone, including themselves. A featureless, lifeless parody of those who have lived and cared for others. Only a life given away for love's sake is worth living, says Frederick Buechner. The realm of happiness is easily entered. Consider the poor. Today I'm finishing Chapter 25 in Winds of Wyoming. Mike punched the power button on Kate's computer and asked, Can you believe it's the last week of June already? Coach swung his chair around to face Laura and Mike's desks. Is the Whispering Pines entering a float in the 4th of July parade this year? Mike shook his head. Who around here has time to make a float? All you'd have to do is put a couple bison calves in the back of the truck, Coach said, and you'd have the biggest hit of the parade. It's not that easy, Laura said. She looked up from her work. We needed banners for the truck, plus we're running low on brochures, so we'd have to get more printed and also buy candy to throw to the kids. Might be insurance issues to consider in case harm is done by or to the calves. She paused. The biggest drawback, I think, is that it may be too late to get an entry approved by the parade committee. Just a thought, Coach said. Mike offered a thumbs up. I think it's a great idea. But then he grunted. "Uh Uh-oh. Laura frowned. What's wrong? This desktop picture, I think it's... Laura and Coach hurried to his side, but Laura turned her head when she saw the photo. That's horrible. Where did that come from? Coach squinted at the screen. Kate put it there? She couldn't have, Mike said. The calf was knifed while she was in the hospital. The two men stared at the close-up of the bloody gash, then at each other. Coach's brow wrinkled. You thinking what I'm thinking? Mike nodded. Yep. Laura stood to the side, her eyes averted from the screen. What are you two talking about? (sighs) Hard to believe. Mike shook his head. It's a different calf. The visitor bell and the telephone rang at the same time. Mike jumped to his feet. I'll get the counter. Thanks. 
Laura returned to her desk and reached for the phone. A middle-aged couple stood at the front desk, their faces bright with expectancy. Mike forced the gruesome image of the dead calf out of his head and a smile onto his face. Welcome to the Whispering Pines. How can I help you? The man placed his hands on the counter. We're the Cunninghams. He had a solid shoulders and a husky voice. We have reservations. Mike tapped the computer and searched through the reservations. Here you are, Buck and Sherry from Lubbock, Texas. He reached across the counter to shake their hands. I'm Mike Duncan. He checked the computer again. You're staying for three weeks, right? Sherry nodded. Does the computer show I paid the extra fee to hunt buffalo? Buck asked. That'll be the highlight of this vacation for me. Mike stopped typing. They're really big animals, Buck. Sherry, a petite blonde, frowned. What in the world will the two of us do with all that meat? All I want is a trophy head to mount on the wall. She wrinkled her nose. I'll hang it in the den. With all the other beady-eyed deadheads, I get the heebie-jeebies every time I walk in there. She turned to Mike. I apologize. It's rude of us to squabble in front of you, but it's probably obvious I'd rather not be included in the buffalo hunt. Mike nodded again. The buffalo hunt. If it's okay with you, Buck smiled, I'll donate the meat to the ranch. Mike refrained from telling him they had more than enough bison meat, thanks to recent events. Laura walked in from the other room. Mike introduced her to the Cunninghams, and they shook hands. Mom, Mr. Cunningham was planning on a bison hunt, but, as you know, things have changed since he registered. We've lost a couple bison to, uh, to mishaps lately. He stared at his mother, hoping she'd support him in what he was about to say. But she stared back, eyebrows scrunched. Mike turned to Buck. I know you want... I don't want, I expect. Buck leaned over the counter, his hands balled into fists, as if he was primed to slug it out. I'm here solely for the hunt, the hunt advertised in your brochure, the hunt I paid for. If I can't hunt buffalo, I'll leave right now and have my lawyer sue for false advertising. Buck! Sherry grabbed his arm. Surely you don't mean that. He jerked his arm from her grasp. Of course I mean it. Chapter 26 Mike knew what his mom was thinking. He nodded to Buck. You paid for a bison hunt? You'll get a bison hunt. I'll line up a guide for you. Laura gave the Cunninghams the key and showed them on a map of the ranch layout where their cabin was located. While she explained the dining hall hours, Mike finished their registration in the computer, all the while kicking himself for advertising bison hunts. Thank God they were running low on brochures. After the couple left, Coach wheeled into the doorway between the office and the lobby. I'm leaving for my appointment in Rollins. Need anything while I'm in town? Laura thought for a moment. Nothing comes to mind, but thanks for asking and thank you for your help today. He maneuvered his chair around to leave. Wait a minute. I did think of something. Her eyes glittered and Mike knew she was up to something. Coach glanced over his shoulder. What do you need? Could you run an errand for me? Sure. He turned the wheelchair to face her. I'd appreciate it if you'd stop by the print shop to see how fast they can whip up a couple banners for us. 
In the meantime, I'll call Jill Harris. She's the parade chairman this year. And order some more brochures, Mike pounded the counter, without that stupid blurb about bison hunts. After Coach left, Laura peered at Mike like she was seeing him for the first time. When did you change your mind about the bison hunts? You and your dad hunted together every fall, she eyed the moose head above the fireplace. You're the one who shot Mangy, and if I remember right, it was your idea to offer our guests a chance to shoot buffalo. I know, Mom, I know. He made another notation in the computer. But the more I thought about it, the more I dreaded watching hunters kill my cows. It's bad enough someone's killed two, maybe three of our bison. And then Kate said the hunts aren't fair because the buffalo are fenced in with no chance to escape. It's not hunting, it's slaughter. Hmm, Kate said that, did she? Laura gave him a knowing smile. Anybody could have said it. Mike shrugged. Marshall Thompson wants to buy as many cows as I'm willing to sell him. Why let guests kill them when I can give my animals a good home? The latch on the lobby screen door clicked. Mike glanced toward the doorway in time to see Tara step into the room, a folder in her hand. He groaned. Laura elbowed him. Hello, Tara. Tara ignored her and beelined for Mike. I haven't seen you for days, Mikey. Her perfume infiltrated the room like toxic smog. Mike coughed but didn't speak. Knowing he cursed at Kate, he hated to think what he might say to Hughes in front of his mom. Tara stroked his arm. He jerked from her touch. She turned to Laura, stenciled eyebrows arched. You the person who does the hiring around here? Laura did not respond. Well, you obviously don't run background checks. Mike considered shoving Tara out the door, but he didn't want to touch her. No doubt she would construe that as an act of intimacy. She opened the long folder, which appeared to be filled with legal documents, and slid the top paper toward them. Notice the name at the top? He couldn't help but look. The State of Pennsylvania versus Catherine Joy Nielsen. Page after page followed, the same name always at the top, whether paired with the State of Pennsylvania, the City of Pittsburgh, or Allegheny County. Tara leafed through the forms, her voice growing louder as she listed the offenses. Robbery! Burglary! Public intoxication! She slapped the forms onto the counter one by one. Assault! Petty theft! Trespass! Possession of an illegal substance! It goes on and on, including... Eyes narrowed, butterflies animated, she leaned over the counter, her voice dropping to a hiss. Prostitution! She straightened a gleam in her eyes. The moment I saw her, I knew there was something wrong with the slut. Did you have any idea she was recently released from prison? She acknowledged their silence with a sneer. Didn't think so. She shook her finger in Laura's face. You've endangered this entire valley by neglecting to do a character check and by employing a convict. You ought to be ashamed. That's, Mike fought to control his voice, enough. But don't you see, Mikey? Kate Nielsen is a prostitute. He slammed his fist on the counter. Out! Kara jumped. Catherine Nielsen could be anybody. Laura's eyes were wide. She can't be our Kate. Your Kate is one and the same. Don't be a bimbo brain. Mike whipped around the counter. Tara grabbed the folder and began to back away. 
He followed her, staying in her face as she retreated. If you, the cadence of his words, matched the beat of his boots on the wood floor, ever again step foot on our ranch, I'll get a... He jabbed a finger at her nose. Restraining order against you. He stopped his advance when she grasped the door handle. That's a promise. You ban me from this ranch? My ranch? I'll tell everyone you hire felons. She thrust her chin forward. Then nobody will come to your dumb dude ranch. You'll go out of business and beg me to broker a deal with my daddy to buy your pathetic little dirt farm. She flung the door open and marched out of sight, her high heels drumming the porch boards. Treasure Island, Chapter 33, and I'll read just a little bit of the last chapter and go right into 33. All was clear to probation. The cash had been found and rifled. The 700,000 pounds were gone. And 33 is The Fall of a Chieftain. There never was such an overturn in this world. Each of these six men was as though he had been struck. But with Silver, the blow passed almost instantly. Every thought of his soul had been set full stretch, like a racer, on that money. Well, he was brought up in a single second dead. And he kept his head, found his temper, and changed his plan before the others had had time to realize the disappointment. Jim, he whispered, take that and stand by for trouble. And he passed me a double-barreled pistol. At the same time, he began quietly moving northward and in a few steps had put the hollow between us two and the other five. Then he looked at me and nodded, as much as to say, here is a narrow corner, as indeed I thought it was. His looks were now quite friendly, and I was so revolted at these constant changes that I could not forbear whispering, so you've changed sides again? There was no time left for him to answer it. Buccaneers, with oaths and cries, began to leap, one after another, into the pit, and to dig with their fingers, throwing the boards aside as they did so. Morgan found a piece of gold. He held it up with a perfect spout of oaths. It was a two-guinea piece, and it went from hand to hand among them for a quarter of a minute. Two guineas, roared Mary, shaking it at silver. That's your 700,000 pounds, is it? You're the man for bargains, ain't you? You're him that never bungled nothing, you wooden-headed lubber. Dig away, boys, said Silver, with the coolest insolence. You'll find some pignuts, and I shouldn't wonder. Pignuts, repeated Mary in a scream. Mates, do you hear that? I tell you now, that man there knew it all along. Look in the face of him, and you'll see it wrote there. Ah, Mary, remarked Silver. Standing for cap'n again? You're a pushing lad, to be sure. But this time, everyone was entirely in Mary's favor. They began to scramble out of the excavation, darting furious glances behind them. One thing I observed, which looked well for us, they all got out upon the opposite side from Silver. 
Well, there we stood, two on one side, five on the other, the pit between us, and nobody screwed up high enough to offer the first blow. Silver never moved. He watched them, very upright on his crutch, and looked as cool as ever I saw him. He was brave and no mistake. At last, Mary seemed to think a speech might help matters. Mates, says he, there is two of them alone there. One's the old cripple that brought us all here and blundered us down to this. The other's that cub that I mean to have the heart of. Now, mates, he was raising his arm and his voice and plainly meant to lead a charge. But just then, crack, crack, crack. Three musket shots flashed out of the thicket. Mary tumbled head foremost into the excavation. The man with the bandage spun round like a teetotum and fell all his length upon his side, where he lay dead, but still twitching, and the other three turned and ran for it with all their might. Before you could wink, Long John had fired two barrels of a pistol into the struggling Mary, and as the man rolled up his eyes at him in the last agony, George, said he, I reckon I settled you. At the same moment, the doctor, Gray, and Ben Gunn joined us with smoking muskets from among the nutmeg trees. Forward, cried the doctor. Double quick, my lads, we must head them off the boats. And we set off at a great pace, sometimes plunging through the bushes to the chest. I tell you, but Silver was anxious to keep up with us. The work that man went through, leaping on his crutch till the muscles of his chest were fit to burst, was work no sound man ever equaled, and so thinks the doctor. As it was, he was already thirty yards behind us, and on the verge of strangling when we reached the brow of the slope. Doctor, he hailed. See there, no hurry. Sure enough, there was no hurry. In a more open part of the plateau, we could see the three survivors still running in the same direction as they had started, right for Mizzenmast Hill. We were already between them and the boats, and so we four sat down to breathe, while Long John, mopping his face, came slowly up with us. Thank you kindly, doctor, says he. You came in about the nick, I guess, for me and Hawkins. And so it's you, Ben Gunn, he added. Well, you're a nice one, to be sure. I'm Ben Gunn, I am, replied the maroon, wriggling like an eel in his embarrassment. And, he added after a long pause, How do, Mr. Silver? Pretty well, I thank ye, says you. Ben, Ben, murmured Silver, to think as you've done me. The doctor sent back Gray for one of the pickaxes, deserted in their flight by the mutineers, and then as we proceeded leisurely downhill to where the boats were lying, related in a few words what had taken place. It was a story that profoundly interested Silver, and Ben Gunn, the half-idiot maroon, was the hero from beginning to end. Ben, in his long, lonely wanderings about the island, had found the skeleton. It was he that had rifled it. He had found the treasure. He had dug it up. It was the half of his pickaxe that lay broken in the excavation. He had carried it on his back in many weary journeys from the foot of the tall pine 
to a cave he had on the two-pointed hill at the northeast angle of the island, and there it had lain stored in safety since two months before the arrival of the Hispaniola. When the doctor had wormed this secret from him on the afternoon of the attack, and when, next morning, he saw the anchorage deserted, he had gone to Silver, given him the chart, which was now useless, given him the stores, for Ben Gunn's cave was well supplied with goat's meat salted by himself, given anything and everything to get a chance of moving in safety from the stockade to the two-pointed hill, there to be clear of malaria and keep a guard upon the money. As for you, Jim, he said, it went against my heart, but I did what I thought best for those who had stood by their duty. And if you were not one of these, whose fault was it? That morning, finding that I was to be involved in the horrid disappointment he had prepared for the mutineers, he had run all the way to the cave, and leaving the squire to guard the captain, had taken Gray and the maroon and started making the diagonal across the island to be at hand beside the pine. Soon, however, he saw that our party had the start of him, and Ben Gunn, being fleet of foot, had been dispatched in front to do his best alone. Then it had occurred to him to work upon the superstitions of his former shipmates, and he was so far successful that Gray and the doctor had come up and were already ambushed before the arrival of the treasure hunters. Ah, said Silver, it were fortunate for me that I had Hawkins here. You would have let old John be cut to bits and never given it a thought, doctor. Not a thought, replied Dr. Livesey cheerily. And by this time we had reached the gigs. The doctor with the pickaxe demolished one of them, and then we all got aboard the other and set out to go round by sea for North Inlet. This was a run of eight or nine miles. Silver, though he was almost killed already with fatigue, was set to an oar like the rest of us, and we were soon skimming swiftly over a smooth sea. Soon we passed out of the straits and doubled the southeast corner of the island, round which, four days ago, we had towed the Hispaniola. As we passed the two-pointed hill, we could see the black mouth of Ben Gunn's cave and a figure standing by it, leaning on a musket. It was the squire, and we waved a handkerchief and gave him three cheers, in which the voice of Silver joined as heartily as any. Three miles farther, just inside the mouth of North Inlet, what should we meet but the Hispaniola, cruising by herself? The last flood had lifted her, and had there been much wind, or a strong tide current as in the southern anchorage, we should never have found her more, or found her stranded beyond help. As it was, there was little amiss beyond the wreck of the mainsail. Another anchor was got ready, and dropped in a fathom and a half of water. We all pulled round again to Rum Cove, the nearest point for Ben Gunn's treasure house, and then Gray, single-handed, returned with a gig to the Hispaniola, where he was to pass the night on guard. A gentle slope ran up from the beach to the entrance of the cave. At the top, the squire met us. To me, he was cordial and kind, saying nothing of my escapade, either in the way of blame or praise. At Silver's polite salute, he somewhat flushed. John Silver, he said, you're a prodigious villain, an impostor, a monstrous impostor, sir. I am told I am not to prosecute you. Well, then, I will not. 
but the dead man, sir, hang about your neck like millstones. Thank you kindly, sir, replied Long John, again saluting. I dare you to thank me, cried the squire. It is a gross dereliction of my duty. Stand back. And thereupon we all entered the cave. It was a large, airy place with a little spring and a pool of clear water overhung with ferns. The floor was sand. Before a big fire lay Captain Smollett, and in a far corner, only duskily flickered over by the blaze, I beheld great heaps of coin in quadrilaterals built of bars and gold. That was Flint's treasure that we had come so far to seek, and that had cost already the lives of seventeen men from the Hispaniola. How many it had cost in the amassing? What blood and sorrow? What good ships scuttled on the deep? What brave men walking the plank blindfold? What shot of cannon? What shame and lies and cruelty? Perhaps no man alive could tell. Yet there were still three upon that island, Silver and Old Morgan and Ben Gunn, who had each taken his share in these crimes, as each had hoped in vain to share in the reward. Come in, Jim, said the captain. You're a good boy in your line, Jim, but I don't think you and me'll go to sea again. You're too much of the born favorite for me. Is that you, John Silver? What brings you here, man? Come back to my duty, sir, returned Silver. Ah, said the captain, and that was all he said. What a supper I had of it that night, with all my friends around me, and what a meal it was with Ben Gunn's salted goat and some delicacies and a bottle of old wine from the Hispaniola. Never, I am sure, were people gayer or happier. And there was Silver, sitting back almost out of the firelight, but eating heartily, prompt to spring forward when anything was wanted, even joining quietly in our laughter, the same bland, polite, obsequious seaman of the voyage out. Here's another excerpt from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. This one she's titled, A Sunday Story. I went up to the chapel to listen to the choir practice a couple of songs. They go out into the community and perform. And on Friday, they got to open for a well-known singer who was performing in the area. When I stood up to leave, one guy asked, are you looking for the chaplain? I said, no. He said, praise God. I guess he was just impressed that I wanted to hear them sing. They have a beautiful chapel. I let my clerks plan and execute a major move of the shelves and tables in the library. We love it the way it is now. We had some problems with guys hiding in the corners and such, so I blocked off the plug-in where they would use a cassette player and moved the jigsaw puzzles more out into the open. The other librarian says that if anyone get, get things approved or accomplished around here, I can. There were things that had not been working for years, and now they are. I just maintain that a new set of eyes sees things and takes care of them. Then they become used to things, and it takes yet another new person to come in and do the same. I visited another prison last week. I didn't care much for it. It is a very small prison, and the library is small in particular. 
The librarian's office was in a tiny closet. However, I really liked the librarian. She asked if I would like to come there and work since she is going back to teaching. However, I like my library better and have found lots of things to do here. I attended a concert this evening given by the inmates. I heard great music and testimonies by several of the guys. One lost his home, family and all, because of alcohol and became suicidal before having a life-changing experience with Jesus. Another one told how he and his family were involved with church but got caught up in worldly stuff and quit going to church. He also got in trouble with alcohol, which led to prison. I had met a guy while out with my friends who has a brother in the state mental hospital. He'd killed a guy and chopped him up. So the third guy who gave a testimony just happened to be the uncle of the guy who got killed. Somehow, the guy who killed his nephew had gotten off the charges, so this guy went and beat him up very badly, and he got 48 years for that. Apparently, the guy who ended up in the mental hospital had a drug problem, according to his brother. This excerpt is titled, Everyday Prison Life. Walking down after dinner one night, I saw half a dozen deer, just standing about ten feet or more from the path. They hardly even looked at me. Also today, I saw a little bunny about the same distance. It was eating grass when I went down and was still there when I went up some hours later. One of the teachers shares her fruit with it. She told me tonight, another generation and you'll be able to pet them. Well, there have been three escapes lately at three different prisons. All of the inmates were caught. Ours was caught several weeks later. He stupidly stayed in the same area and tried to shoot some people, but shot their dog instead. So the story goes. Since he was a Mexican, we all thought he was back in Mexico by now. Walking down one day with my bucket of mail, books, etc., I had three different guys ask if they could carry something for me. They are really quite polite. Then the other day, one young man said, Oh, this will never do. I have to help you carry that stuff down. And he did. The same young man, whom I have done a lot of research for, has asked his cellmate, one of my clerks, to suddenly find out what I like so he can do something for me. I told the clerk to tell the kid that I cannot take anything. It's my job to do this, and I do the same for anyone who has an information request. I, like a cop or anyone in this type of position, cannot accept gratuities. If the guys make artwork for us, we either have to buy it or we have to leave it there in the library. The clerk said, Who would know? And I said, I am not opening myself up for a setup. About the time I took something home, someone would tell someone and so on. There are lots of ways to execute a setup. By the way, I was watching the Golden Girls the other day, and I think it was Dorothy who said to Blanche, You're chumpier than a virgin at a prison rodeo. Huh? What does that mean? Things are going well at the prison. I like it a lot. I joined the employee council. It really helps to have friends among the staff. There's a lot of sabotage that goes on at times in prisons among staff. If you don't have someone who has your back, you are like a lamb among wolves. Or as another staff member said, we're swimming in a shark tank. 
I had a talk with a Happy Tuesday guy. He says he has all he wants here in prison. He works a few hours a day and can't imagine really working at a regular job on the outside. Great. I said, what about women and real friends? He came back later and said that after my counseling, he felt so good he was going to write someone a letter and tell them he cares about them. He came down later and showed me a beautiful drawing that he is doing with hearts and a man and a woman kissing. I love to see their artwork and plan to have a contest soon. This guy has a very ill mother and needs to get out and take care of her. I'm helping one guy try to find his roots in Ireland. He wants to go there when he gets out. However, I did some research about passports and visas, and I think being a felon precludes that. This guy had a shootout with the cops and was shot four times. So he most likely will serve all of his time. He was a very angry guy, but now he smiles and waves from the window. He showed me his test scores from his GED testing, and he did very well. We can't do too much research. In fact, 15 minutes per request is what we are told to do. He also asks for love poems to send to his wife. I find some for him and keep them in case someone else wants some. Many guys make beautiful cards for their friends and families. I just hope he only wants those poems for his wife. And again, not a setup. See how you begin to think when you work in prison? You have to be suspicious of everyone and everything, and that isn't only the inmates. We are losing one of our good clerks. He is the one who planned our big shelving move and is a great book-covering clerk. But he couldn't resist taking home some laminate to put on his Britney Spears pictures. And when he got shook down, they found it. I am very disappointed in him. This is one reason they tell you to hire murderers or sex offenders, not thieves. Here are a couple poems from Eugene Shea. His first one called Labor Shortage. I bought this prefab metal building, boxes and bundles of odd-shaped parts, I knew it would be tough to assemble, even for a workman of my smarts. Figured my friends would help me out, as I'm a pretty likable guy. But I found the demand for free labor quite often exceeds the supply. And another short one, Foolish Young Cottontail. He ate my leafy lettuce, Foolish Young Cottontail. He ate my garden peas, Foolish Young Cottontail. He ate my string beans till I ate my foolish young cottontail. And we'll go out with a quote by Michael J. Fox, the actor. Every failure I have considered my own, but every success has been shared. That's it for now. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. 
Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.